You, you don't have an Overton window there. You have an Overton arrow slit. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, but that's what happens when you sort of manage your system in the right or slash wrong way. But we'll get into that further down the road. Well, the way yeah. I would introduce what we're trying to do is Carl is the former neoliberal who has read more Marx than any of my Marxist friends mm. or me, me for that matter. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, ne- neoliberal is a harsh word. I'd say I'd be a, a right libertarian, but I'm sort of... Mm fed up with the whole free market, free what, free everything wipes from the Europeans, basically trying to find some sort of, uh, you know, way out of that. And hence, the sort of thought of monarchy is is interesting. And, you know, not being a total like uh, Hoppian libertarian or anything, but I sort of became very disenchanted with the libertarian views, especially in immigration in Sweden. Well, trying to find a political alternative here is sort of hard. So just getting discussion going is, 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 is a win, I think. I find that one sort of gateway drug for people like yourself is Monster Olson's idea of the stationary bandit. Have you heard mm-hmm. the stationary bandit, you know, yep. analogy? Yep. And, you know, I, th- I feel like, you know, you had many, many kings in Sweden going back quite some ways that were in, in some ways, not just stationary, but also mobile bandits. And, mm. you know, in their roles, mobile bandits, they were certainly rather terrifying to others, but their own people, uh, you know, prospered and uh, grew strong yeah. loot from the monasteries and so forth. But it's a myth that they ever wore horn helmets. There were no helmets yeah. with horns on them. No. Exactly. It's from the amazingly bad or good Vikings movie where I think Kirk Douglas or something from 50s, 60s. Really? Where it's a horned helmet. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. That's where the myth comes from. But yeah, but you have a lot of those people in, in Europe. I mean, uh, Orban is one, Polish guys is mm-hmm. another, trying to reignite that sort of tradition in a sense, right? Of keeping some sort of uh, not and Bailey fort and protecting the peasants from, from the ravaging hordes of, of modernity, I guess. There we are. There we are. But, All right. Shall we jump into it? Shall we? Let's jump yep. into it. Yep. Yep. Now so, already into it. Then the man, he's a revolutionary. The arc of the moral universe is We'll try also to introduce you, Curtis, to our normal listeners. The way we read you is that your diagnosis is that the American project, as we know it today, has failed. It is essentially an empire without an emperor. You made primarily comparisons between the ancient uh, Rome and modern day uh, USA. And then, of course, there's a question if whether that is the late Roman Republic or if it's the late Roman Empire. Um, Indeed. And uh, essentially, we thought, like, it looks like you're in a conundrum. And so we figured we might have some of the solutions here, that we come from Sweden, which might have had its emperors or monarchists, as you like to call them. So we figured that making a comparison here between, on the one hand, your view on monarchy and our own brand of social democratic uh, modernist monarchy might uh, solve the Gordian knot. The question I always have about a place like Sweden is to what extent you can even identify at all with, you know, the pre-modern past, because you mentioned yeah. monarchy in Sweden, and I think Charles XII, I think Gustavus Adolphus, you know, Sweden yeah. was very involved in the Thirty Years' War. There was certainly, there were Swed- there was a, you know, there was really Swedish imperialism, right? There was an yeah. attempt to, like, really influence, you know, create a lot of influence outside Scandinavia. And of course, if we go way, 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 way back to the pre-Christian era, 
we see another and very terrifying kind of Swede. But it feels like when you encounter sort of not just pre-modern Sweden, but even pre-1940 Sweden, you have the same effect that I compare to the Islamic attitude towards pre-Islamic civilization. You know, they use this word jahiliya, which just means like paganism or ignorance or something. And it's like, you know, there's this, this conscious, intentional forgetting. And even when you know sort of the raw facts of the world before the current settlement you're you're sort of curiously emotionally disconnected from them it feels like very much a foreign country yeah and so even in sweden i would say and correct me if i'm wrong from your knowledge of swedish history it's sort of hard to imagine a world in which Germany wins the war, it's almost implausible that they could win. But if mm-hmm. we suspend that that plausibility and Germany wins the war, not to the extent of like taking over the world man in a high castle style, but even just sort of survives, I think that you see a very different Sweden emerging. And I think both those Swedens are present in the Sweden of 1940, not yes. to mention the Sweden of 1900. And so yeah. it's not that, uh, you know, the, um, you know, the Gunnar Myrdal Sweden, you know, didn't exist before 1940. Clearly Gunnar Myrdal was, was, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, Gunnar very Myrdal. well. Myrdal. Yeah. You know, it's clear that Myrdal was was born well before then, but it's also clear that, you know, there's a sort of interesting Americans themselves before the victory of World War Two, and especially before 1900, did not have the sense of like world dominating sort of security, like emotional and intellectual security that they had then. And so, you know, the idea of saying, you know, Myrdal, of course, edited, I don't think he wrote the whole thing, but he edited this book, American Dilemma, which became the source book, not just for America's approach toward race in the second half of the 20th century, but I think also, you know, towards Sweden's because that basically the Gunnar Myrdal approach to basically saying when it comes to integration, like, you know, every New Guinean tribesman is a Sweden, is a Swede waiting to be born in Sweden. And we can do that. We can turn anyone in the world into a Swede. They had this sort of complete confidence of this, right? And that, just, to, you just know, to piggyback there, Curtis, it's not just that it's a Swede, but it's a social democrat waiting to come out. It's a social democrat waiting to come uh, out. I, I, and, sorry, I usually just compare it to the like the most go-to scene is the is the scene in, in Full Metal Jacket, right? By the mass grave. And you have the colonel saying, Look, in inside every group, there's an American waiting to come out. That's why we're doing that's right. in Vietnam. That's right. So that's Sweden from S. Right. And that's the ideology of that's the ideology of Gunnar Myrdal. And you know, yes. the the idea from today's perspective, I think there's only a slight frame shift that it takes for an American today to, you know, think of the Americans of the mid 20th century 
asking a Swede to solve their race problem. Uh, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, you can't imagine someone who, who knows less about race in America than a Swede. And that's almost <laughs> the point, right? Almost the point is that he's sort of removed from this and he has this like, and of course the reverence for like revered European professor talking in a funny accent is still there in America in 1950. And so it's like, if we asked Americans who, for example, have met a black person to solve a racial dilemma for us, they're almost sort of too close to this problem. You know, what we need is the abstraction rather than I mean, this has been sort of a constant issue in sort of the American discourse about race since well, you know, Mm. solidly a century before 1950, where sort of Americans, uh, you know, European Americans who knew African Americans would be like, hey, um, you like Yankees don't have any black friends you've never met a black person and you're basically telling us how to solve our like problem with this it's like basically someone who maybe has kept a pet dog giving you advice and like lion taming and you're just yeah. like but you've never met a lion but you know and then you're just like but abstractly I understand from first principles, like this, the, you know, the principle of the lion. And moreover, if I had met specific lions, it would actually just confuse me about this lion thing. And so you have this, this sense, you know, uh, the, this Myrdal thing seems so crucial because you sort of have this sense of like the ideal being more important than the reality. The ideal actually has a certain level of contempt for the reality. It's like basically the ideal says to the reality, well, of course you can't see the forest for the trees. You're right in there amongst the trees. You know, we train our telescope on the forest and it's obvious that it's a forest, but you're just obsessed with all these trees. Right. And, you know, the historical experience there's there's a neutral way, uh, a way that, you know, sort of depends on is rather than ought to quote David Hume. There's a a way of saying when you have a policy and the policy is enacted and the, mm-hmm. the actual results of the policy do not match the predicted results of the policy, then without reference to whether those results are good and bad, you can say that essentially that that policy is deeply miscalculated. And I would say that when you look at the policies, whether the the policies that Gunnar Myrdal brought to America or whether he's the ones that he sort of, in a sense, re-exported to Sweden, because, of course, there's there's a prestige effect on both sides Because, you know, to Swedes, basically, the Social Democrats can say, well, this professor is so revered that even in America, which is just conquered in the world, even in America, they call on Professor Myrdal to solve their problems. So, like, how could anyone be more, like, esteemed than that? Like, how could some, like, peasant wisdom sort of compete with that? And so you get these policies where people are just absolutely certain that this will have a certain effect. And then surprisingly, it has a completely different effect, sort of turning the uh, the population of uh, Rinkeby into Vikings, you know, or even into, you know, good Swedish Lutheran bourgeoisie, you know, out of an Ibsen play or something. I mean, Ibsen was Danish, I guess, but it's the same thing to me. Norwegian. And the Norwegian, is, there you go. Which is Swedish which is, back then. Yeah, yeah. I, yes, yes, yes. I mean, I, I sort of actually, you know, I, I do just as a matter of American curiosity want to get into the difference between, 
you know, Scandinavians, because I mean, I, you know, that sort of racism is very interesting to me. What Swedes think yeah. of Norwegians, what Norwegians think of oh, Swedes. Yeah. We'll get there. Uh, you know, it's kind of micro, micro racism, you might say. It's like Serbs yeah. versus Croats. Very interesting. Very topic. much but, Balkan. You know, yeah, very, very Balkan, Balkan effect. Right. But but yeah, you have this this tremendous sort of sweeping over of Americanism and the Americanism is more pure. I mean, I think Johan and I in London were talking about the Roland Huntford book, The New Totalitarians. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems to me that it's sort of like if you look at the English language, the place where there are most the most varieties of England of English is England. And then when English is exported, basically you get these like monocultures. You don't get the, you know, it's like apples come from Central Asia, right? In Central Asia, there's like zillions of kinds of apples. But if you go to Washington State in the US, you'll find miles and miles of like just red delicious. And so, you know, not only was it sort of an Americanizing ideology that sweeps over Sweden in the 20th century, you know, you only get one kind of Americanism. And indeed, when you talk to basically the average European, they won't recognize social democracy as an American import at all. When they look mm. at, you know, what is Americanism, they see like it's like an American looking in England and being like, oh, England is full of really funny bad English, right? You know, mm. so when a European looks at America and their art's all about God and guns and gays and slavery and sort of all of this stuff, which are the kinds of Americanism that were not the dominant Americanism and so did not get exported. And and that's a, you know, I think most people in Europe really completely miss the fact that the ideologies that they consider European are very much sort of America's colonial ideologies. I think there is not, uh, you know, five Europeans in a hundred who understand that. I, I think that's true. So, okay. So, so I think that goes to sort of what we mean when we say the word modern, right? In a sense, mm -hmm. we have the sort of progressive attitude coming out of the twenties and thirties that sort of pollinate through the Western world. And that's sort of what we mean when we meet, that's why progressive and modern have sort of become entwined in a sense, right? Because we have this sort of cross pollination of, of oh, not only ideas, but language. Uh, American is the hegemonical language of Europe and the, the world. And, and you watch, and you watch basically culture spread along with power. And so yeah. modern means sort of what's winning now and what's winning when what's winning now is American ideology. That's yeah. one thing. But for example, but the really the high top of Nazi Germany, you saw that modernity can flow in completely other directions. And so you saw, for example, that even before the Third Reich in, in Germany, you know, the ideology of the students is right wing ideology, which is very confusing to us who assume that students are always leftists. You saw like weird Nazi parties springing up and like there were like Mexican Nazis. You know, yep. you laugh at the idea of Mexican Nazis now, Hitler and Sombrero, right? But, yeah. you know, the Sinarchistas, you know, the, those were serious Mexican Nazis, yeah. you know. And of course, in Sweden, you have your, wasn't Ingvar Kamp, Kamp, Kampfrad, Kampstar? Yeah, Ingvar Kampfrad, yeah. the founder of yeah. IKEA, was also uh, yeah. a He was a Nazi. He was a Nazi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was yeah. brown in his youth, and, right? And, and then, and if, and if, you know, Hitler had pulled it out, he would have been, uh, you know, as brown as a tree for his whole life, presumably. Mm -hmm. But as an Arab uh, philosopher once said, um, uh, Osama bin Laden, when people see a strong <laughs> horse and a weak horse, 
they like the strong horse. And so, you know, there's this this sense of like power going along with strength where, you know, it's something also to go in a completely different direction. It's something Welbeck, you know, sort of appreciates in submission where it's like basically he imagines a world where like Islam is a strong force. And that basically makes, you know, Islam cool among all the students and all the professors. And they're like, I get to have three wives. What's what's not to like? It's, you know, we used to call it polyamory, but now we call it Islam. Sure. I don't know. You could even get San Franciscans, I think, you know, Burning Man. If, if ISIS took over the U.S. government, Burning Man would start to get very, very Islamic, you know, yeah. desert to desert, you know, desert to desert. Exactly. Desert to <laughs> um, but to your point of the student movement, that was definitely a thing in Sweden, too. Um, Nazi students. I mean, yeah, 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 for sure. And, yeah. and it's and yeah. it's just like you talk about, like elite culture today. That was that was the elite culture. I mean, a, a subculture, albeit, but definitely among the that strata and you can still find this uh, uh what's called bust when you know when you have the figure of a head yeah a bust yeah a, a bust. bust yeah the, so uh, in my student collective in Uppsala we had a, a bust of Hitler in the oven which is also in the oven yes in yeah. the oven intersection on Nazism right there but it had been there it had been there ever since it was taken completely yeah it was seriously. genuine of course yeah it was genuine yeah yeah. yes uh, but but yeah. that's the st- still the re- I mean you have still I think the old student culture in uh, Hungary and Poland and Germany and mm-hmm. Sweden. And, and there's an old Nordic aristocratic countries. student yeah. culture. There was yeah. a culture of basically yes. these were young yeah. nobles. And so, yeah. you know, often hereditary nobles. And so sort of right wing ideologies kind of had a natural resonance for these people, I think. Whereas, you know, the ideology, of course, social democracy and what is the Volkemet? Am I saying that right? Yeah. Volkemet. Volkemet. Yeah. The people's home. The people's home, you know, is is like very anti-class, very sort of blank slate even within. Because, you know, one of the things, even if you look at Nazism, okay, yeah, you can see it. Obviously, it's a right wing ideology. The idea that national socialism is like socialist in some sense in, in a sort of left versus right sense is obviously wrong. On the other hand, they still believe that all Germans are created equal, right? They still have this sense of like being beyond the old, you know, if you look at the horse vessel song, you know, they fight against reactionaries in the red front. So they're basically, they're still against this hierarchical idea that maybe the nobles are better than the, than the peasants. So, you know, you're really, you even, even Hitler, the idea, you know, which we now know due to modern genomics to be absolutely true, that there's a genetic difference between nobles and peasants is kind of outside even the Nazi Overton window. And, you know, that's, that's how bad it is. It's that's because of democratic politics, right? Like that's, uh, that's, uh, you need that sort of uniting force, right? Yeah. And so there's, there's sort of no, you know, as so often there's sort of no future in telling the truth. I mean, and this is even, you know, worse and like, you know, isn't in Finland, you know, the Finnish nobility was traditionally Swedish, right? And so you have this, this sort of, you know, Swedish, you know, noble class ruling over these, you know, sort of ugly Finnish peasants who speak this incomprehensible language and may be descended from Laps or Sami or maybe even reindeer, right? And that sort of vibe really is not reinforced at all, needless to say, by kind of any powers in the 20th century. I'll bet even the even the Swedish fascists probably do not want to stress the difference between Swedes of noble and peasant extraction. No, because no. there's no yeah. reason to to be I mean, because they're not aristocrats. They're yeah. plebs. 
They're heads. plebs. That's right. That's right. And you know, and you can see that by I mean, if you look at sort of the ancient, you know, Scandinavian, their equivalent of like Hinduism, really, you have this this, you know, three part or four part division of society on which the bottom are the thralls. How do you say that? Thrall? Yeah. Thrall. Which basically, which basically though, yeah. means slave and the slaves are they look like they come from the south. They have dark hair. They have wide heads. They're basically in Sweden. We would say they're from Skåne. They are. They live in the no. They the Småland. They live in the forest. They usually <laughs> live in the forest. Is the is that word the same word as as the English troll? Does it come from the same root? Troll. No, I think it's more thrall. 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 Right. Right. Thrall, but really. but is thrall and troll like a cognate at all, or just totally a separate? No. Because are you trying to create just... a link to the shuds? I don't think it's. <laughs> um... <laughs> I don't know. I'm just curious. Yeah, the thorn, the thorn and the tea are, are very very different. Um, you, you say thorn in Swedish, like as in, as in the Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Thrall, not troll. Okay, fine. But uh, you know, I still like the link. And and you know, the idea is that basically this distinction is probably goes all the way back to three thousand years ago when you have these early European farmers who are basically conquered by long-headed Yamnaya battle axe wielding six yep. foot five blonde Conan the Barbarian. No, no, feet. not not we sorry, uh Curtis, we need to be politically correct uh on this podcast. It is corded mm. wear culture, not corded wear culture, not not battle axe culture. That's right. That's yes. right. That's right. That's right. They actually, you know, they they may have had battle axes, but these were just just decorative. Uh, yeah. They came in peace and they conquered with love. As and they another traded. another they another legacy they of traded. the post forty uh, Anglo Saxon influence you exported yeah. over here. Do you, do you know the name? Uh, you know, I really need to read more of his books. Do you know the name Sven Hedin? Yes. 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 Uh, do people still read Sven Hedin, or is he considered no, but uh, they, evil? They, no, he's he's considered evil, but he he's like a sort of semi occultist uh, Nazi linked mm-hmm. guy because yeah. you know he got the medal from Hitler once. But right. he he is, I mean, still like and 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 people who know their stuff know he's a a, a he slur guy. He has he's a, a Swedish, Indiana Jones uh... in Sweden. Yeah, yeah, I would say Indiana like Jones he, in Sweden. No, but even exactly. more, he has like a Swedish Lovecraft energy. Yeah, also yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, and are his books still in print in Sweden or no? No. No. I oh mean, my God, that's so you, sad. Would, no, you would find I mean, I think he didn't he write a book about Hitler, I think, or he knew Hitler or something like that. He, I uh, think he, yeah, I think there's a text of, of him praising like the German sort of rise to, to glory again, probably. But that's yeah. sort of a dime a dozen for Sweden in the 30s, right? So, but I would say like, the, the, more imp- the, the more important context here is that Nietzscheanism was fairly large at the turn of the century in Sweden. Sure. Uh, we had uh, literary critics like um, uh, Strindberg, who was yeah. big on Nietzsche. So this idea yeah. of heroic... They were um, Yes. So, yeah. so you had her- basically people who wanted to be heroic figures in culture, right. in politics, in science. And so they, they would keep on that zeitgeist essentially yeah yeah and it's, yeah. And it's also and it's also the sort of transition right from from obviously part of the of the late 18th, 19th century romanticism but like it's the it's the pro- project of actually building a nation out of what had been an empire so yes. sweden is an empire until 1905 when we sort of dissolve yeah. the union with with Norway, but that's the oh, okay. union of Sweden Norway. That's a post Napoleonic sort of construct. Sure, we and sort was, of... was was the was the secession of Norway was um, Perfidious Albion involved in that? 
Were the Brit- uh, did the British kind of pull Norway away? I, I I'd love to blame like liberal England for everything, right? Or the Whigs. I love to absolutely. But, but, but the the but the but the problem here is like the the nefarious influence. I mean, seemed, essentially yes, but like can blame <laughs> them for liberalism at large. Sure, yes. you could you could yes. do that, and it's probably Gladstone's fault as, as well as uh, the Norwegian situation and the Danish Danish situation, which which was de facto, as we know, uh, an English sort of coup against them, and they betrayed yeah. their glorious uh, Danish allies to the Prussians. Anyhow, but yeah, it was the liberals. They just like the liberals just yeah. said, no Norwegians, go your own way. They didn't know about the oil yet, right? So we didn't mm. know we got we had like uh, you know the uh, Saudi Arabia on the on the Atlantic right next to us. That probably because you thought of you sort of sort of Norwegians as essentially these like very crude fishing people who are like yeah. sort of mostly human might eventually progress to full humanity. Spoke this language that is like it's sort of mutually intelligible. Can you understand Norwegian? Does it just sound unbelievably silly to you if you hear people speaking Norwegian? So it's like so this, it's like the way feature Deutsch sounds to Germans. Is that right? Yeah, and and, yeah. and and the way you treat Canadians, basically, like but Canadians sort of is not so much, but like Scots, like the Scots mm. is actually not Scottish Gaelic, which is a totally different, very deep root, but the Scots language, uh, you know, right. and the Nye, you know, whatever, you know, and and there was this wonderful incident in. Uh, they have God only knows why a Scots Wikipedia. And it was discovered that large portions of the Scots Wikipedia had actually been written by this teenager who was just turning England and English into like fake Scots and didn't even know any Scots. <laughs> and, um, Sounds like the scriptwriter to, uh, I don't know, Game of Thrones or something that something like that. I mean, there's there's a quote. I asked a Russian friend of mine or not a Russian, but a, a student of Russia, you know, to explain this whole Prigozhin situation. And his yeah. answer, I really, I think, spoke to a lot of periods in history when he was just like, first of all, you need to understand that Russian history is a Coen Brothers film. <laughs> and, and you know, that, I mean, uh, my God, if you've seen, uh, I, uh, my fiance and I were just watching the uh, Coen Brothers uh, Burn After Reading, uh, absolutely classic comedy about Washington, which is much more true. It's a comedy, but it's like very true in a way. I mean, like both like Russiagate and now this COVID-19 thing is revealed to have been uh, all Coen brothers all the time. But, you know, uh, I mean, speaking speaking of COVID, really, what's so fascinating about Sweden is that Sweden really went its own way with COVID. And what we see, yeah. I don't know how trustworthy this was, what we see, and I was very skeptical of the Swedish approach because I was actually kind of a COVID hardliner. And what we see in at least excess death statistics, I don't know how confirmed this is, is that Sweden has one of the lowest rates of excess death in the world because you guys never locked down. And because more generally, because you sort of never there was sort of enough kind of independent spirit that, you know, America went through this strange flipperoo on covid where in like at the start of February 2020, you were supposed to go to Chinatown and lick doorknobs to prove that you were not a racist. And then Trump was like, you know, uh, we uh, there's no such thing as a virus. And if Trump had been like, you know. It's, uh, you know, we must protect America's precious bodily fluids from the from the Chinese Kung flu. We'd still be licking doorknobs. And in Sweden, they kept licking doorknobs. And it turned out that licking doorknobs was actually in a way seemed like it was kind of the right thing to do, at least if these statistics can be trusted in that. I, I mean, I still early covid was a nasty thing. You didn't want that. But it seems like you basically in terms of the no 
this is going to get out. It's getting out and getting everyone. And we just have to go for herd immunity and like protect old people as much as we can. It seems yeah. like that was the result that was actually vindicated in time. And it came, yeah. it came from an actually a very unusual level of like intellectual independence and self-confidence. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. But also, go first, uh, uh, yeah, what, what we got told basically is we're doing this for social justice reasons. If you don't like it, like, you're a fucking traitor. Go go to hell. Yeah. You're a traitor. Uh, yeah. And, and which is and, so strange because all the other countries were like, we're doing exactly the opposite thing for social justice, you know, reasons. Yeah, if yeah you but don't we're, like co- it, we're Sweden. Go to hell, you're a traitor. We're Sweden. Yeah. yeah. This we're, is the third way. Outliers. Yeah. Third <laughs> way. They, yeah. they basically said, fuck old people, let them die. We don't care. Like, this is the only way to do this because of, you know, people have to get to work, taxes have to get paid. Like, we're not stopping this train. And, I think that's the legacy of of the sort of centralist impulse uh, and the monarchy mm. sort of Swedish. Something actually pre-democratic where really yeah. like, you know, you had, I mean, I guess you had like sort of one leader who was the leader of the of the response in Sweden, but he was like this little emperor and he just refused to change his mind when America told him to change his mind is my understanding. Yeah. 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 You are referring yeah. to Tignell. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. 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 He, he he's a national hero but like yeah. uh and i think all the libertarians uh hated him like for a reason like yeah. we're this is a social democratic experiment and it and it very much was like they they are yeah for it all was a strangely the... libertarian social democratic experiment yeah. though because yeah i mean the ironies are just you know there there's so many covid was such a beautiful exposure of ironies in so many ways like we're sort of indebted to it for kind of discovering all the strange things about our society, especially in the West, the the ideological switch between right and left is just so, I mean, you know, you read 1984 and you're just like, okay, yeah, sure. But it's a little cartoonish. There's no way we could be like, we have always been at war with East Asia, but no, they made it work. It was incredible. And like people, you can find all these like people who are like, even, you know, not just, you know, the people, but like serious policy wonks. And they all like switch sides. It's incredible. Yeah. And the... No, it was a, a clear pill. Uh, COVID was yeah, a clear yeah. pill, for yeah. sure. Yeah, it taught us, it basically just taught us that whatever's going on here, it's weird. And it's like, it's not right. And, you know, this is uh, this is why I'm a monarchist. I don't know. Like, uh, but uh, what would what would Charles Twelfth have done? Or uh, what's his face? The... Um, God, the minister who has said that um, the world is governed with very little wisdom. Uh, I think it was Queen Christina's minister. Yeah, yeah. Axel Luxunkarna is the he's yeah, the yeah, Gustav yeah, Adolfus yeah. guy as well. Yeah, yeah he's the yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. chancellor. Yeah, yeah, and he basically uh, he basically ran the show, as I understand it. Yeah, so 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 I, I like on a serious point, I think that's like our intellectual tradition and a sort of not popular but sort of intellectual sense. I'd say very much is informed by by people like Oksana, who's who's still remembered in in some circles, but also I'd say like. Uh, to just mark the year, it's 500 years now since we got our first Renaissance uh, king and the first uh, uniter of like uh, hereditary kingdom of Sweden was Gustav Vasa, who, who, whose mm-hmm. uh, sons uh, came to rule both uh, the Commonwealth of Lithuania and Poland and Sweden as well. But they were mm-hmm. very much Machiavellians in every sense of the word because they they had chancellors who had uh, contacts 
uh, down in Rome, and they have very much yeah. read the, the works of Machiavelli and, and implement them in Sweden. Yeah, it was. A, yeah. I mean, would you call that? Is that the Swedish Renaissance per se? Is would you use yeah. that word? Would you? Yeah, yeah basically, yeah. we didn't even we we went straight to Renaissance um, with Gustav Vasa. I would say, but uh, and we and we, we 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 in some way we went to 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 early modern period very fast, and mm-hmm. we became a nation very fast. It's the first central bank. We have the first sort of national institutions and that sort of machiavellian impulse whatever you'd like to call it i mean sort of very much pre the french experiment of of you know trying to to unite uh and centralize their country produced uh uh, a country that can marshal resources like no 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 other country could hence why we could like this shit country i think like maybe a million maybe two uh, in, in population could could in basically invade Germany and and push as far as the gates of Vienna, which is uh, interesting in itself, right? And ended up with this huge empire where m- two of uh, the the three largest cities were outside what is now Sweden proper, right? So so um, it, cities, for me, it's which- it. Was it so that's Kiel that's no, not Kiel. it's Riga. Riga was the large city, and oh yeah, Riga, uh, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and then yeah, and then I think Stettin was was uh, pretty huge then as well. Uh, but I think the in, Swedish primary, yeah. In the modern day parlance, what you're saying, Carl, is that Gustav Vasa in the mid 1500s ran Sweden like a corporation. Did yeah. all the changes needed? Uh, got rid of the vestiges of Catholicism, as you hinted to earlier. Either demolished and probably the- also also you know these were centralizing kings, and a lot of what they had to get rid of was the remaining decentralized power of the feudal nobility. Yes, exactly. So you had you know the sort of age of ab- absolutism. Correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of one way of sort kind of connecting this past to the present might be, you know, a very daring heretical observation, which is that the social Democrats actually have more in common with this legacy than, say, the Sweden Democrats do. Very much. Yes. And I mean, if you look back at posters... Can you expand on that? Can you expand yeah, on that? Yes. Just to, just to paint you a brief picture that when the social Democrats in mid-1900s go for election year, they picture their leader in a lineage going back to Gustav Vasa. So the wow. a- idea of the national chieftain is very much vivid in their own political language and rhetoric. Yeah. Whereas whereas uh, the Sweden Democrats are peasants, basically. They're Trump voters. They're uh, yeah, they're angry plebs. Far, angry plebs from from the countryside. Yeah. Yeah. And the, yeah, the leaders yeah. are basically uh, they're they're uh, much worse than what like how Huey Long was ever w- viewed in Washington. Right. These people and they are call, from... they're also called pig fuckers for that reason. Yeah. They, yeah they're and, called and, pig fuckers. So actually, is that yeah, a te- but everyone is, that a is, called, is called that. So the, you, you yeah. don't make this just about Sweden Democrats, but it's it's really that's where it comes. That's from. a good word. But that's act, that term is actually how do you say pig fucker in Swedish? Get it. Oh, yeah, wow. It's, and it's we even have one. another but, another word. So the Swedish equivalent of dog whistle is a gris whistling. Which yeah, is, that's, that's pig whistle. I, uh, a, pig whistle, a pig whistle, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, no. To associate the lower classes with pigs, of course, is... Is there, you know, anything beneath you is associated with the pig, who's this very ignoble animal. And so basically, when you see as someone who's an educated aristocratic person, a citizen of Europe, imagining these pig fuckers in charge of you is just like both hilarious and frightening, depending yes. on your perspective. Yes. Right. And and so and so, you know, sort of to get out of that trap as a rightist of any kind is very difficult. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because because, because we're stuck in uh, 
in this parliamentary system, which does not allow for any sort of, uh, I mean, we have to, uh, you know, harken back to the fact that Sweden Democrats have been an active, serious party for 23 years now. And they've only achieved power in the last election cycle, like de facto power influence. And the pig, the pig has still not given birth. Right. I mean, power, you know, yeah, no. Right. And and it's only like in the US, in a sense, right, it's only tainted the sort of idea of, That's right. Of, of anything of, you know, that the Sweden Democrats support, you know, support develops yeah. a sort of odor of the pig. Right. You know, and the pig is is sterile. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I like the term pig fucker is that, you know, your pig is not going to give birth even to a half human, half pig. It's basically this purely onanistic activity. And and you see this sort of a purely onanistic activity just as well in like Trump. It's just like it's, you know. Even in Boris Johnson, there's like this sort of vast and Boris Johnson is a very intelligent, educated man. He was editor of The Spectator. But you know what? Basically, what is Brexit? It's a pig fuck, you know, and the like getting sort of out of this, you know, for us as basically, you know, sophisticated students of history for whom right wing doesn't mean any particular kind of pig fuckery. It just means sort of the absence, I mean, stepping outside of the Overton window really in any direction. Uh, you know, I always lo- love to use this, use this analogy of the word Gentile because it means the absence of something. Like sometimes I'll say racism is not a belief, it's an absence of belief. And that just really confuses people. But to me, it's obvious. But the like the sense of like, Okay, I'm going to like step outside this current, which I believe, you know, I perceive this current of like progressivism, modernism, liberalism, whatever, to be like the whole intelligent world. And the idea that there could be intelligent thought outside of that stream is a very remote one. And the existence of these pig fuckers basically only reinforces that opinion because you're basically like, okay, this is what intelligent modern European people believe. But what if I didn't believe that? The answer is Mm. go fuck a pig. That's absolutely to the Swedes of 300 years ago. You know, they would have considered it ridiculous that you couldn't be sophisticated and literate and sort of speaking Latin and yet sort of not believe that, you know, Sweden... Uh, should become a suburb of Morocco. And the like, because if you believe that it's basically not straightforward to basically turn a Moroccan into a Swede by teaching him the right language and giving him the right passport, then you fuck pigs. And that's a really, really powerful psyop. Yeah. And it, it, but it's also it's also uh, it's a psyop, but it's also you know a, a sales pitch for anyone who wants to get into uh, civilized society or business or whatever. Yeah. And and like if you think Silicon Valley and Washington is a small place, I have news for you: Stockholm yeah. is a suburb of a suburb of of that mentally and physically, right? So and if you so, fall outside of that suburb, you're just like, who is this person? He's going crazy. No. You probably has syphilis like Nietzsche, you know, and yeah. and so it really it really becomes for the most important ruling classes. It really becomes the Overton arrow slit where basically you just have this dogma that's essentially not only is it as narrow as the old Communist Party line as essentially is the old Communist Party line, because let's be real. And mm-hmm. so you have the sense in which it's like Americans always 
as a like kind of 21st century anti-communist, when I look back at the 20th century anti-communists, they feared exactly the wrong things. They feared American anti-communists, number one, saw communism as this like disruptive alien force coming from the outside, whereas the truth is it was re-exported to America, just like Gunnar Myrdal. So that's a vast, vast misunderstanding. And then secondly, they focused on the thing that was most anomalous about it, which is that it had this dictatorial, you know, authoritarian quality because this this ideology that is, you know, in America, it kind of leads naturally to very, very oligarchic structures. You export it to Russia, the home of autocracy, and it becomes purely autocratic. And then, you know, they're like, oh, my God, this is autocratic. And I'm like, well, yes, it's like Hitler. It's like Hitler. I'm like, yes, it's autocratic. Uh, Yes, it's practiced in a foreign country. But these are not the real problems with it. And so when you focus on the problems with it that are not the real problems, you're really just tilting at woodmills. But but this is the funny thing about Sweden, I think, in like in a, in a 20th century context, because you have people like Khrushchev, right, going to Sweden, and he he mm-hmm. he rolling around with the social democratic prime minister who's just won, I think, 52 percent of the popular vote in this country, and he goes, and this is Tage Lander, who is the predecessor of the sainted Olaf Palma, who everybody knows, yeah. but a, a much better politician and a much sharper mind. And Khrushchev goes, so Mr. Lander, I. I you have full communism in Sweden and it didn't need a revolution. How did you manage this? I, I find that fascinating because I, 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 I think like Khrushchev, even if the story is very much apocryptical and, and you know, and I think like it, but it contains a kernel of truth. And that is mm-hmm. Sweden is seen as this progress, progressive paradise, which is in which it in some cases also was right. It failed yeah. in the 70s and 80s. But it was what what it purported to be. Uh, Just was- a, a quick caveat there, Kalle. I think the place they're visiting was like Uxelsund, which is like a steel mine, yeah. a steel steel town. <laughs> and what's interesting yeah. about Uxelsund is also because Sweden, as Kalle mentioned, didn't have all the workers they needed, so they had to do uh, like imports of of a labor yeah. force yeah, yeah, from yeah, Sweden. Provider, yeah. So yeah. It, yeah. it also showed in a way to the Russians that look, it's possible to, so to speak, integrate different ethnic groups under the uh, the umbrella of social democracy. Sure. And the I mean, that's part of Soviet ideology very early on is like the Soviet of the nations. The Soviets in the 1920s are promoting Ukrainian nationalism. They're basically saying, you know, it's uh, this thinly veiled divide and conquer thing. But they're very much saying, I mean, they even, you know, they had affirmative action, right? They had everything. And they had this whole set of policies, you know, to essentially weaken their enemies. And not just that. I mean, we can be um, we don't have to gr- agree with Solzhenitsyn on everything. But when he's basically like the Bolsheviks were not Russians, of course, he's mm. using you know how there's two meanings two two words for Russian in Russia. Yeah. In Russia. No, Ruski, and you have a word meaning in Sweden. Do you have a, two different words meaning has a Swedish passport and is of Swedish descent? Yeah. Or it's, it's svensk or svenskar is not the same. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. Which is a very a distinction that I think a lot of liberal uh, professors wish did not exist. Do they actually yeah. call Somalis who speak perfect Swedish like Svensk? No, that or, would no, be Svenskare. No, I, I, I th- yeah. but I, but I, you know, I, I hate to disagree with you, but I think New Swedes is is the popular term for New for, Swedes. Uh, yes. Wow, that's really yeah. Also, yeah, Soviet Swedes. sort of. Uh, 
parking there. Yeah. Like, yeah. You have a, <laughs> the new Swede. But back, what about you know, the Ruskin? Swede. I don't think anyone says new Russian in the same way. I, I don't <laughs> think there's a word for that. Like, I think they say Rossiani <laughs> and not Ruski. And no. that's just going too far. It would be like, you know, an American would never imagine that, you know, someone's, you know, a pair of American businessmen have a blonde haired child in Japan and he goes to Japanese schools and grows up speaking Japanese. No one would describe this person as Japanese. The it would be I'm Japanese. What? No. Like. And so, you know, what's the what's the future of the Swedish immigration challenge? I mean, you're getting more and more. The Sweden Democrat ideas are seeping more and more into the mainstream and causing you to be more like Denmark, right? I can we can definitely do a pivot to the other Scandinavian countries in this regard also. But I think an addendum to Carl's story about Khrushchev is that also some decades earlier when Mussolini sent some of his civil servants to Sweden in 1930s to study uh, the healthcare services, they came back saying mm-hmm. that they have successfully created uh, fascism in Sweden. So mm-hmm. this goes to some to show some of the um, nefarious nature of the adaptation of the country, or at least from the out outside view of what the country is and what it achieves to do. It is, right. yeah, it is. I mean, Swedish culture is sort of naturally authoritarian, whether it's monarchical or oligarchical, right? Is that one way of saying so, yes? Yeah, and and I'd say I'd say the problem is or problem, but like it's just the fact fact that we've never had a, a proper oligarchical culture since i mean hmm. uh the, the the kingdoms were united back in the 12th uh, or maybe even uh, 13th century right so right. so this has always been a country where the king and the sort of guards the peasants against the nobles it's right. a, it's a like anti-oligarchical yeah it's a very anti-oligarchical society and and it's it's very much uh sort of i'm i'm, I'm reading of Hilaire belloc's uh, amazing monarchy at on my table and, and it's very interesting to see the, the the sort of arguments put forth for this uh for louis the 14th can very much be be you know uh linked to the Swedish sort of experience of monarchy, which is keep the moneyed interests out and, and keep sort of a, a, a strict pro-peasant, but also pro-national policy that doesn't mm-hmm. sort of infringe on, on, on national sovereignty. And that's very much the social democrat line until the 80s, 90s, where basically like the Soviet Union, as real socialism collapses in Europe, uh, social dem- democracy does so as well because of other mm-hmm. reasons, but it's very but much. But not the party. But not the party. And the sort of people who have been aristocrats in that party and sort of know what's co- the Kool Aid or what's the formal mm-hmm. meaning and what's the, you know, right. the true meaning of the message, they sort of disappear because, because. Because of the cycle of regimes, basically. And these people become plebs and they sort of generate the country to where it's no longer able to rule itself. And we have not got an oligarchy running this country right now because we have nobody running the country. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I would say adrift means an oligarchy in a way. It's just a very Mm. there's always power. There's always someone in charge. You know, I'm reading currently history of England and the Wars of the Roses and specifically Mm. Henry the Sixth, who is a very he's a nebbish, as we uh, say, as we Yiddish speaking people say, (laughs) and not that I speak Yiddish, he's a nobody. And, And so when you have this sort of nobody in charge, like power 
kind of moves out from around the throne and sort of gets held by whoever can can take it really and so the sort of the rule of nobody's leads to you know you do get these sort of little empires like you know Anders Tignell you know where mm-hmm. they basically have really autocratic personal decision-making paper because power, because if that one person whose name I'm not going to mispronounce again, if that one person had chosen basically to go with the American approach and, you know, then Sweden would have gone with the American approach. Like that's actually, that's a little bit of monarchical power, which is relatively unusual. Now we're seeing in the U S that basically with uh, some of these messages that have been, you know, unearthed that, you know, Fauci, who also is a kind of little despot, actually was responsible for funding the coronavirus, covering up the funding, fighting against it. It's like, uh, as they say in Italy, it was fought on both sides in both world wars. And the same is true. You know, Fauci fought on both sides of the coronavirus. Right. You know, (laughs) and he was genuinely for it before he was against it. And the but, you know, ostensibly, it is not Fauci's kind of personal power that dictates this. It's just that he can call a meeting and get the scientists to say what they need to say. And then they have to basically double down on that unless they look like complete asshats. Mm. I mean, for me, monarchy, democracy and oligarchy are not forms of government. They're forces of government. And every regime has to kind of integrate these forces and either control them, compromise them, sort of become part of them or something. And so when you look, for example, at the way the force of democracy is controlled in the Western world today. It's controlled almost exclusively by like a vast system of propaganda, which causes us to fear and loathe, quote, politics, politics, meaning democracy. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of like democracy being in charge of the government to an American or a Swede today is like the idea of politics being in charge of the government, politicians being in charge of the government. You know, if you ask people, if you pulled people and you said, do you believe in democracy on the the streets of Stockholm? They would be like, of course. And then you could say to them, um, does that mean, you know, would it be a good idea to put politicians completely in charge of the government and they'll be like oh my god politicians so bad right you know and they're talking about the same thing they don't even realize it yep which is just which is amazing it's just like like i was saying earlier with 1984 you'd never believe that information control could turn people around that completely and yes it has so so the problem is like uh, there's so many threads of of reweaving sort of the sense of where we're where we even can sort of formulate a, a future in this right but but like yeah. it seems like a fallen hope to hope for something like you know a, a restoration of of higher learning or even even learning in a sense right because the internet seems to be heading in a more centralized way and sort of uh, the algorithm seems to be steering us in the same way that the, mm-hmm. the universities sort of have a, a, a monopoly of, of well thought right now. Right. Of course. So, of course. So and the, the idea, problem- the idea of, you know, so I feel like we've gone around um, sort of the problem enough, but the solution is still very difficult to find. Can we do another, a second half of this another day? 
Yeah, for sure. All right. Awesome. Awesome. And we'll go we'll go in that one. We'll go straight to, okay. we've danced around the problem enough. Like, what is the solution? Yeah, that sounds great. Awesome. 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 Thank you, man. Okay. Talk soon. This will be to be a great podcast. All right. Talk soon. Mm -hmm. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Hey, Javlars. Nice. Uh, oh, fy fan, alltså jävlar. Det kan man inte vara på en podcast samtidigt. Man måste på flera. Yeah. Men överallt. Uh, Reaktionen behövde honom. One week later. First thing, how's your, how's your throat? Uh, I think it'll do. It's, it's improved considerably. I decided to uh, take what uh, doctors call empirical antibiotics, which is uh, means that you take a pile of stuff you ordered from India. And, uh, you know... <laughs> Seems to be working. It felt bacterial, so I uh, decided to be my own doctor. <clears throat> I'll survive, so I think I can go for an hour to an hour and a half, maybe. Let's see. Okay, so the quick recap before we jump into this. I don't know, I don't know if I'm, we mentioned this last time, but there is this Swedish uh, writer who in his youth could be described as somewhat of like an anarchist or liberal anarchist, who was also a commentator on social democracy. Mm-hmm. He made an assessment at the time, this is like 30s, 40s, that the Social Democratic Party was founded on two original ideas. The first is how to take power. The second one is how to keep power. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned this because in a way encapsulate a lot of what we discussed earlier and also is is reminiscent of Orwell's comment in 1984 about Oceania, that the part of ruling Oceania is the first part in history to only seek power for power's sake. Well, I mean, you know, the, you know, There are very few. It would take a lot of nihilism. This is, you know, this is a really sort of fundamental question, uh, you know, about the left, which is very interesting, which is that I, I, I genuinely believe that the effect a certain style of thinking is very much this but it's also the sort of the consciousness of that kind of thinking is in some ways very limited and so kind of part of the puzzle that sort of the right always you know as i think i said before right is really just the absence of left and so you sort of have this Mm. when when you look at the left from the right you sense this sort of like demonic sort of almost addictive like hunger it's really like like the hunger of an addict mm. and it's sort of a collective hunger and if you look at the minds of individuals in it of course they have like a vision for example but i mean it's like you know take something as simple as as climate change. So Mm. one of the ways that I like to persuade people to sort of think about this is to imagine a totally different scenario. As we know, the earth has a very variable climate and to imagine a scenario in which anthropogenic, uh, you know, gases, um, the word clean has always struck me as one of the most Orwellian words in our discourse, because whatever you can say about CO2, it's not dirt but the it's not really anything like dirt but if you if you looked at a scenario in which the basically predicted rise in temperature over the lifetimes of those now living was predicted with just the same level of accuracy which is not a great level of accuracy but actually the accuracy of the of the input of the climate forcing from greenhouse gases is is pretty good 
it's modeling the impact of that that's not very good. But the impact of greenhouse forcing is is sort of easily defined as the equivalent of a corresponding increase in solar flux in the radiation coming from the sun because the greenhouse effect of course radiates discovered by your own you know Swedish uh, Swedish scientist uh, whose name I won't attempt to say oh yeah Svante Arrhenius Arrhenius there you go um and the and suppose that this effect was attributed suppose we lived in an alternate world where the same increase in, in solar flux was attributed to a reliably predicted by astronomers increase in the output of the sun hmm. which as we know is a somewhat variable star when we try to imagine a world in which basically people are as concerned about that identical impact on humanity and for example consider mitigations such as geoengineering which in my view is the best you know way to approach anthropogenic climate change um i don't think that it would generate the same level of interest within two or three orders of magnitude i think people would basically be like oh yeah this is a thing that's happening you know we wouldn't you know we can only notice it use <clears throat> via like very dedicated scientific instruments maybe the impact is a little greater toward the poles maybe if you live in alaska or the north of sweden mm. you can actually sort of see it with your own eyes other than that if the scientists didn't you know know it was happening you'd never know it was happening no. and the which is certainly the case for anthropogenic global warming i mean a fun exercise is to go back to people are very confident in making 30 year predictions because they don't think that anyone will be able to call them on their stuff. If you go back to 1990 and you see what the predictions for 2020 are in like newspapers that had just started to be on the web or whatever, it's just absolutely crazy stuff, right? And and so, you know, there's a sense of power that clearly the interest in this phenomenon is fundamentally coming from its impact on humanity and the sort of the political narrative of like sin behind it and not just the narrative of sin but sort of the justification in that sort of moral narrative for taking power over large numbers of other people in very large ways. Hmm. And and so, you know, there's a there's a narrative of sin which leads to a narrative of essentially punishment. And you really see, you know, when you look at like Greta Thunberg or whatever, you really see that that messianic narrative of punishment coming into play and it basically sort of justifies these i mean you have in europe everywhere you have these people who glue themselves to the street now do you have that in sweden yep you know weird crazy stuff for some reason that that's not yeah or blocking highways blocking highways for some reason that's not a thing in america maybe it's just because we have so many suvs but the the um the you know the passion of that drama you know is clearly not a passion for making the earth a colder place than it would otherwise be the passion for that does not come out of i hate warm weather or like my house is by the seaside and like the sea is creeping up at three millimeters a year or two millimeters a year whatever it is i think it's about that and nothing can be done and in 30 years half of my front beach will be washed away 
It's not coming from that, right? It's coming from basically the feeling that this provides a justification to take power over others. And and that energy is is just fundamentally alien to anything kind of non-left. Worse, I would say that the right or what we call the right, the resistance to this, often when it looks at basically motivations for collective action, sort of comes up with things that sort of clearly actually rely on leftist political instincts. And so you have this model of like, oh, these people are totalitarians. We must rebel against them. We must all start wearing Guy Fawkes masks and, you know, whatever, 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 have a demonstration, have a, you know, and and you realize when you're doing this, that you're actually fitting this entirely leftist paradigm you know so for example there was a thing called the tea party in the u.s there are actually Mm. two things called the tea party in the u.s one of them was a leftist mob that in uh 1775 or 76 i forget the exact date um violated private property rights and dumped a bunch of tea in boston harbor the other was an anti-leftist movement that got a lot of people together to uh complain or something. And it turned out that when they complained that strangely nobody cared. And mm-hmm. and and nothing happened and people got bored and went home. And the or you know closer to you you have the gilets jaunes in in France who are like all political mm-hmm. change in France happens by, you know, getting large numbers of people together in the street. Therefore if we get large numbers of people together in the street, things will happen. Mm-hmm. They did it. Nothing happened. And eventually COVID happened and people went home and got bored. And and so, you know, there's a sort of failure somehow the the sort of the attempt to like understand intuitively how to kind of fight against this kind of terrible force which sort of sees so it so clearly resolves into like we must gain power and the power is the you know there's always a sort of justification for the we must gain power I mean, you know, social democracy, communism, socialism, progressivism, whatever you want to call it. These days, I like saying to people that um, communism is just a euphemism for progressivism. And they look at you strangely and they're like, don't you mean, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, that that whole force is sort of it's a revolt of the elites. It's basically an attempt by people who feel that they naturally deserve power to gain it and their justifications for power, you know, whether it's like the, uh, you know, the rights of the worker, you know, a hundred years ago Mm. or the rights of the immigrant now or global warming, or, you know, if you remember the, uh, you know, the peace movement back in the, you know, before the end of the cold war, all these people are, you know, all the people that were in the peace movement, you know, 30 years ago are now like banging like bloodhounds for war in the Ukraine. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like all of these pretexts kind of disappear in like favor of this, like hunger to like prevail. And the, and understanding like how that works is is critical to disarming it and especially i think understanding not just you know and understanding how like not you know in 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 defeating it 
understanding mm. that you can't like just fake it from the other side. You yeah. can't basically get together a bunch of people and kind of appeal to their political instincts or sort of have them you know, they're trying to do something rational and you're trying to sort of bring them, you know, the rational thing is to say, essentially, hey, surrendering to these instincts has turned out to be a pretty crappy way of government that does some pretty strange and crappy things. And we would like to replace this with a non crappy government. That's a rational choice. And so to some extent, you know, human politics is based on these irrational emotions. But, you know, you have a fundamentally different set of irrational emotions, of motivations, of ways of thinking that basically can be organized in the opposite direction from this. And Mm. if you basically say that the human political instinct is sort of just leftism and nothing but leftism, uh, then you're basically your thing always kind of peters out. That was a fairly long answer, but does it get it? Some of the things you're, you're pointing toward? Yes, and to clarify also, within the context that we discussed about actually how you attain the power, that is how you set up something approximating a monarchical rule, the, the, the description here of the Swedish social democracy, what makes it tick, is not primarily a critique as much as what a praise for what has made it a monarchical force from the 1930s until the 1970s. What has happened thereafter is that, well, an oligarchic force, really, because there was never a single like, like, like it never developed the sort of monarchical form that Eastern, you know, that, that the Eastern parties developed, where they actually went so far into power that they basically sort of generated this Leninist structure. You never had a Leninist structure in Sweden, as I understand it. That is true. Uh, my point here is is more that there's a real political instinct that you can yeah. create plausible myths for people to believe in, for example, by combining socialist, nationalist, and if need be, liberal sentiments, and that these myths over time then got mistaken for being the real thing. So in brief, Swedish mm-hmm. social democracy went from trying to be this purple Caesar to become a red Caesar. Red in the European sense. But, yes, you know, sorry, the, yes. The, in the, yeah. <laughs> the, yes, yes, yes. You know, the the I mean, but it was still always I mean, you know, it never quite again, you know, it it's it's the reason I, I balk a little is people always identify sort of this overly intrusive state. I mean, all first of all, like limited government is a myth. All states are total. The question is not whether it's total, but whether it's unnecessarily intrusive and unnecessarily. And the and, and I think it's very clear that there's a lot of stuff in, you know, sort of the new totalitarian to use the Roland Hunford term mm-hmm. in the new totalitarian state that's clearly overly intrusive that basically you know wants to uh, wants to control your your thinking and really wants to regiment you at a level which is totally unnecessary and, and inappropriate for many many people so, you know, seeing this come, seeing, you know, this come from sort of an oligarchic structure really violates, you know, there's just, you know, all of this leftist myth making that's gone into the way that people think about power now. It really violates this myth making 
when we see like these structures, these this kind of force exercised in an oligarchic way, you know, to, to take a very different example, people are all, you know, when they look at, say, censorship on Twitter, on the old Twitter, on old social media, they're like they sort of they fixate on this sort of top down structures and they're like, oh, my God, it's coming from the government. The government is doing it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're referring to like the blacklist that they reinstated by end of the 2010s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sort of blacklist coming from even from FBI and CIA and then mostly coming from these NGOs. And they're like, well, these NGOs are funded by, you know, the state. So this is really state censorship. And then, you know, you go to one of the many sort of Twitter replacements that sprung up, which is Mastodon. And you see that Mastodon is far more censored than Twitter ever was. It's far more intolerant. It's far I'm, more. I'm not that surprised, Curtis. <laughs> I know it's far more like like geschaltet, you know, to use the German <laughs> term, and with no sort of government involvement at all. And so mm. you actually see that that you know this force is coming from a much different place than than you can imagine, or it's like. When, you know, and American classical liberals, libertarians just don't understand this. And so when, for example, Elon Musk in his new Twitter put labels on all these media organizations of like state funded media because they're like, he's really like the problem is not the state controlled media. The problem is the media controlled state. Mm-hmm. Everyone has sort of a language for thinking about, you know, which is a language that's developed over hundreds of years. Thomas Paine, all of this stuff for complaining mm-hmm. about state controlled media. But no one has a language for complaining about the media controlled state. Mm-hmm. And so the and, and no one can imagine kind of what the alternative to like the media controlled state is. And. They sort of because you don't in anything you do where you don't know where you're going, you are not going to get anywhere. And the like and 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 so you have like there's all of this energy intellectually. You have intellectual energy and you have populist energy that is very unhappy with this system of being governed. You have that here. You have that in Sweden, but it doesn't understand it. It just it can't even conceive of what the alternative is. No, it's the elephant stung by a bee. Uh, Tell me, I don't know the metaphor. Well, the metaphor is, of course, the Republican Party. Elephant stung by a bee, and it doesn't really understand from where the attacks come. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't understand. The elephant understands how to fight a rhino, but it doesn't understand how to fight a swarm of bees. And, And that's sort of due to... I mean, for me, it's extremely obvious how you fight a swarm of bees. Um, you actually, the problem is not the bees. The problem is the beehive. And the and and so, and it's not even that the problem is these institutions. The problem is that you basically, even if you were to completely destroy and scatter all the institutions of power, they would just reform and they would reform in a more toxic way. 
it's mm. really it's it's you know just as basically you find that mastodon is actually more censored than than twitter it's actually filling that vacuum of power that's needed and this is why understanding that you know it's so difficult to understand that the only alternative to basically a total oligarchy is a total monarchy no one gets this and mm. it's not yeah sorry curtis do you think like a problem is basically also the lack of modern day i mean role models because it, or like in in the machiavellian sense right because machiavelli he points to to the borgias and says this is you know uh not the angle but this is to 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 find power in, in well, the, uh renaissance renaissance italy but but you know how do we point out like a dr francia move in in <laughs> and the current climate, right? Well, see, you know, you, you actually you point directly to the problem, although you may not realize this, which is mm -hmm. that the fundamental problem here is is presentism. It's a sense of historical uniqueness. It's like mm -hmm. if you lived in basically yeah. the uh, Ruritania, right? And you're basically like Ruritania has always been governed by the uh, assembly of the Ruritanian knights. And you're like, you know, um, how do we imagine a government different from the government of Ruritania? Well, you know, if you were to broaden your mind a little bit and you could say, well, maybe we don't have to look for solutions for Ruritania. Maybe we could look at the what the Slobovians, you know, 50 miles across the border do. Right. right. You know, and so, you know, it's this basically this is why the the sense of historical uniqueness applied to the present is so toxic. Because if you think of the present as fundamentally better and different from the past, and you think that basically lessons learned in the past do not apply to you, I know these people were interesting, but they're very barbaric. Did you know they didn't have any antibiotics or iPhones? You know, how would we learn from people who didn't have iPhones? How would we learn from, uh, you know, uh, what was who is the 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 um, famous uh, Swedish um, uh, chancellor who said Oxenstierna? Um, yeah. yeah, you can say that right. How how would anyone in Sweden today, you know, care? Like, imagine you uh, say that name properly. Axel Oxenstierna. Oxenstierna. God, yeah. that's so weird. Uh, yeah. You know, how would anyone in Sweden, I today, I'll just call him Axel. Uh, how would anyone in Sweden today think? Oh, you know, what if we brought you know uh, Axel back? What would he make of Sweden today? How would he change basically the way Sweden is governed today? Crickets. Crickets. Yeah, people people would people would just suggest he'd be a nice social democrat, I think. Like that would yeah, be the Yeah, they'd either they'd suggest that he'd be a nice social democrat because he would have let's say, you know, you bring him back and the first thing he does is okay, what happened from now till then? And he'd look at what happened till now till then and he'd basically be like, "Ah, I see. We've learned so many things about human beings. We've learned that everyone is created equal and we're all the same inside and what we need is more immigration from Angola, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, no, I don't, I don't think that that would be the <laughs> lesson that he took from the 20th century at all. Right. And, and, yeah. and it's actually, and, and so, and by doing that, you're basically disrespecting him because you're saying, you know, Hey, you know, Count Oxel, you know, we know so much more than you about everything, you know, related to, you know, governing our country. 
And he would be like, but there are like places in Stockholm that you can walk around and your life isn't even safe um, at night and maybe even in the, day, in the daytime. And mm. you're lecturing me like what? Yeah. Excuse me. You know, and, yeah. and so, you know, the sort of that that feeling of, you know, this is why sort of I've, I think to be a reactionary has some potency because two things. One is that you're sort of popping this bubble of specialness. You know, they're popping this bubble of like usness where you're basically sort of casually and unconsciously like asserting without any evidence at all, asserting the superiority, the moral superiority of us over them. Moreover, it's actually fairly just in terms of an intellectual trick. You know, one of the sort of mental tricks that people are taught at a very early age in all progressive societies is basically to be like, no, you are not superior to the Angolans. You know, you just have a different way of living than the Angolans. You live in apartment buildings and, you know, they live in slums with pieces of tin. But, you know, that's mm-hmm. not doesn't mean you're fundamentally different. It's just a difference. And, you know, they haven't received enough government aid or something, something, something. And <clears throat> yeah, you know, <clears throat> Maybe in Angola, they don't have antibiotics. Maybe Count Oxel didn't have antibiotics, right? You know, but that doesn't make sense. Sorry, Chris, this is almost, uh, you just need to mention here that, um, as you might have noticed, we had the burnings of uh, Quran in in Sweden Mm. recently. And this caused a lot of revolts in Arabic countries, including Uh uh, attempts to burn down the Swedish embassy in Baghdad. And there were also Uh Swedish politicians here at the time um, saying that, well, the problem is that we haven't given these countries enough aid. Uh, yeah, we need to give, right, give right, them more right, money. Of course. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, there's no way of giving aid to the past, you know. But but the sense of basically, you know, the the the, the 19th century German historian Leopold von Ranke said, uh, you know, all all edges stand equal before God, and we're used to. <clears throat> sorry, my laryngitis is getting me a little bit. Um, we're used to saying that all nations, all races, all sexes stand equal before God. But for some reason, saying all ages, all periods of time stand equal before God mm. is, is very radical. It's really reactionary. And yeah. and so you basically you can actually use these mental tools of the left to kind of prick that bubble a little bit and say, no, actually, you know, it's pretty easy to do this exercise of being what would, you know, Count Oxel think. And maybe he's not right. Maybe you could argue with him, you know, like what would, you know, for English speakers, what would Elizabeth the first think? Mm-hmm. I can tell you about the Elizabethan poor laws. I can tell you about Elizabeth's extremely retrograde views on a number of subjects, um, which, you know, um, basically make Robert E. Lee look like Martin Luther King. And, and you know, the the like if Elizabeth the first came back and was just like, what the hell, Elizabeth II? Why did you let your empire disappear and your country crumble and be like invaded in this way? I think that would be a very interesting conversation. Mm. Uh, sadly, I can't use the metaphor anymore because Elizabeth II has passed away. Uh, but, you know, the like, fine, Charles I and Charles III, you know, right? right? I right. think that Charles III would have uh, quite a, a rough time defending himself against Charles the first, who was a much better educated and much more practical man 
Well, in fact, I think you, you can think you make, can make a harder case for Charles and go full Jacobite on this. Sure. I mean, and Charles, Charles the first basically, you know, really regretted that he'd been kind of too soft in a way. And he was basically he made too many concessions to the Puritans too early, most mm. notably allowing them to execute his chief minister, for which he really he, um, you know, he acknowledged his guilt, uh, you know, on the uh, on the on the gallows or on the execution block or whatever. And and so, you know, it's like simply by this sort of one act of respecting the past and saying knowing the past is not the same. I mean, you can read, you can get all the history books you want, and they all basically, to use a term from, you know, progressive theology, they all basically other the past. Mm-hmm. They all, you know, they objectify it, they demean it. They basically they never asked this question, what would they think of us? And if they ask the question, what would they think of us, which they almost never do, they basically they never take it seriously. Hmm. And so, you know, when you basically have when when you sort of eliminate this thinking of like what modern examples do we have for this? And we throw away the word modern. We have a ton of examples and we, you know, understand very, very easily. The second, you know, trick that we can use, of course, is we can say, well, this is just a problem of how to run the state as an organization and the state as an organization is no different from other large organizations except that other large organizations are all exclusively run on fundamentally the monarchical principle and so you know it's very easy to imagine you know like ikea right you know Mm -hmm. like what if we had a state that worked as well as ikea you know have you been to a government i mean i think in sweden the government works really somewhat better than it does in the u.s but you know still there must be a notable difference between going to a swedish government office and going to to ikea you have ikea in sweden right you you know to it's not just for export. Yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and 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 so, you know, again, you know, when you basically look at everything that works, everything that matters, all the things that we use and build, they're built by monarchies. In many cases, they're built by monarchies in a monarchy because they're made in China, which mm. has, of course, mm. this remarkable monarchical structure. And you basically turn over anything, you know, all the gear that we're using to make this podcast was made in a monarchy, you know, and and was was your microphone made in Sweden? I don't think so, you know, and and so you're basically like sort of you have all of these obvious answers staring you in the face. Now, the mission of a state and the mission of a corporation to sort of generalize, yes, you can say the state is a firm. You can say the people of the state are the assets of that firm. You don't have private companies whose assets are literally human beings, but, you know, except for maybe uh, football teams. But the, um, you know, it always it always strikes Americans really weirdly when they see uh, that in European um, soccer, as we call it, uh, players are bought and sold. They don't do that in America. Um, I think for historical reasons, basically, you trade players, but you don't sell them. And, you know, and you read the like the European news and you're like and you're like, ah, 
uh, I guess it's okay. Uh, seems weird. Uh, you know, I'd be, I'd be, uh, I guess I'd be more comfortable if they weren't Africans, you know? Yeah. Okay. And, that's, that's and, maybe, maybe and, the count. And, no. and, 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 well, but it's so much money. I guess it's fine. Uh, you know, and, um, I get, but, but, no, but, okay. But, but I think the yeah. counterpoint to that would be like in the U- US, it would be like only this group of people can wear these kind of clothes. We're in the Europe, like yeah. okay, so I don't know if we're gonna have like ethnically coded armbands and stuff like that. Yeah, anymore. yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of the ghosts. The ghosts of the past are sort of ever yeah. present, but right. But the thing is that you know when you're sort of this is why kind of breaking out of this frame of like modernity is 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 you know this thing. It's it's not a matter of time. And it's certainly not a matter of technology because other regimes, the Nazis had great technology, right? As you probably know, the Nazis put a man on the moon. It was really the American space program was the Nazi space program. Uh, you know, they didn't put a Nazi on the moon. But honestly, if you look at Neil Armstrong through like a 20, 21st century lens, he's I mean, he's American, you know, <laughs> but is he a hippie? I don't think so. You know, and and so but like literally the head of the program is the same. Right. So the Nazis are perfectly fine technology. You can't say, oh, you know, we wouldn't have iPhones if the Nazis had won the war, you know. And so the like modernity is just this one political system that happened to prevail in this very special century. And so it's very easy to connect the system of governing human beings with this century of technical miracles. Uh, you know, as we speak, there's been a credible uh, announcement of uh, room temperature superconductivity. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But it's yes. very likely it, it feels real. And I, the, I think, uh, Carl, you shared it with me earlier today. Yeah. No, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It feels real. I mean, you know, of course, it needs a lot of development, but like that it can be done. You know, I, I would have said maybe it can't be done. Right. So but, um, you know, trust the Koreans to find a way. And, uh, you know, they can't figure out a way to reproduce to, for you know, uh, uh, their own fertility, but they can apparently make uh, superconductors. So uh, good for the Koreans. Um, and um, the but you know what, if the Koreans were being run by the Japanese Empire, you know, I'll bet that uh, they would have done just as well with that, if not better. And and so you basically can't you can't blame you can't associate this political system with the miracles of technology. You just can't. There's just no justification at all for that. And so, you know, what we have, you can say perhaps a little more credibly that the political system is in some ways a consequence of technology, but it's a very contingent consequence. Hmm. It's a consequence which, if not for a few military events, you could imagine coming out very, very differently. But, but what you're saying is not determinate in this vulgar Marxist it's sense. It's not determinate in, in this vulgar Marxist sense, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, not, I mean, I'm not even just a vulgar Marxist sense. I mean, in a Marxist Marxist sense, perhaps, you know, and <laughs> but certainly in a vulgar Marxist kind of Whig history sense, it's not determinate. And so, you know, once you basically break that sense, that confidence that people have that, you know, like Candide, we live in, you know, the best possible of all possible worlds. And you're just like, 
no, this is not how it is. Mm. And the like you have a real kind of opening of the mind. That's kind of the only for someone who's smart and kind of you know kind of philosophically capable, that's the only kind of mind-breaking pill you need. And then mm. you can basically say, what would Oxel do? You know, mm-hmm. and you know, Oxel would probably not be a social. I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that Oxel would, I'm sure find many points of agreement with modern social democracy he would be impressed in many ways at the strength of the state he was not a believer in a weak state he was not a libertarian uh you know but he would also be like look at many things and be like uh, my friends uh this is just crazy and the like and and sort of like it's not that difficult to access this source of wisdom and kind of breaking this form of confidence is like a very it's just not a difficult step Mm. in my mind but yeah and 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 of course you do have modern models to some extent people love to talk about Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore okay yeah sure it's great the 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 situation with Singapore is very unique it's very far away it's uh you know it's Singapore it's not even really a tourist destination who goes to Singapore Curtis, this is this is, I think a good point that you're making that like what Lee Kuan Yew did in Singapore is in a way contingent to that specific geography uh, and yes. what he had to the, the the hand he had to play, so to speak. Yes. But in, yes. in that sense, I think that is the whole point of why you would make a comparison between an American and social democratic progressivism with with regards to a monarchical mindset because what we're discussing now is how you get into a regime change mindset yes and i think carl correct me here but you made this comment sometime that the swede is a monarchist like the average swede yeah sorry tell me tell me tell me well the average swede is a monarchist because i think we believe beyond all beyond pretense of of you know idealism it's it's really about uh, efficient management of, of the state and the people we tend to idealize are people like Kamprad, but also the 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 people who sort of can wield the power of the state to to improve or to to uh you know uh enhance natural sovereignty and and sort of be a force for centralization and 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 uh so common good values rather than that factional figure or 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 splitter or anything of that bulk. Yeah, and and so it's it's not that hard to basically, you know, in America you have this kind of residual kind of libertarian leftism where people still it's just it's so hard to sort of fight uphill against these sort of people that believe in kind of these is sort of this kind of vanished Republican small R order, which in many mm. cases simply sort of persisted due to like the weakness of the state. And one of the things you can't really have when you have modern technology, a number of things change and you can't really have a state that's weak by accident in a world with modern 21st right. century technology. You have mm. to basically sort of artificially officially weaken the state. So, for example, one of the things that developed very late in English history was a kind of centralized tax collecting regime. And so the result was that taxation, and this is one of the things that brought down 
the Stuarts really is that they didn't have a standing army. They never developed kind of a sort of true national administration. And so even the you know the kind of structure of parliament where even sort of queen elizabeth has to ask parliament for money her parliament is kind of a rubber stamp parliament but she's still like that goes down to kind of many voluntary decisions to send money upward uh she doesn't really have an inland revenue service and so there's a lot of you know there's sort of these points of weakness which made elizabeth the first never kind of anything like louis the 14th and those points of weakness kind of expand into the demise of that state and you know and and that sort of the you know that idea that basically the you know the people need to like rein in government by controlling the the power of the purse as american constitutional theorists call it has decayed into this horrible horrible thing where the federal where the executive branch in the u.s is micromanaged by the legislative branch based on appropriations has nothing to do with like you know efficient government or like the people like reserving their you know actually the most you know, gerontocratic oligarchic structure in the U.S. government is the House of Representatives, uh, you know, which is still presided over unbelievably by Nancy Pelosi. And there's a uh, there's a wonderful photograph. I don't know if you've seen this photograph. There's a photograph of John F. Kennedy staring at Nancy Pelosi's tits. <laughs> I kid you not. And, and, she's, and she, you know, she's that old. Amazing. She's like, yeah. Antediluvian. Antediluvian. She's that old. I mean, you know, like, like, uh, uh, you know, she was a, she was a young woman to the point where maybe it would be a little inappropriate, but, uh, you know, it wasn't a case of pedophilia. She's that old. Right. You know, yeah. and, and barely, oh, wow. you know, like, like President Biden, you know, barely conscious. I mean, you know, and so you have this oligarchy, which sort of, I mean, with the amazing thing, I, you know, uh, we'll see what happens in the 2024 election. But honestly, reelecting Biden wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because the more senile it gets, the more it becomes visible that the system of like Biden did this and Biden did that. And you see in all these, you know, press releases, the Biden administration did this and you get, you know, the uh, the sort of picture. If you just read this this sort of official prose of this like Napoleon like leader, you know, who takes an interest in everything and knows everything and just makes a hundred decisions a minute, incredibly Mm. decisive man. Right. You just see that this is not actually like, the case and uh, it's kind of like a brezhnevication of the u.s yeah 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 exactly exactly where you know also brezhnev is clearly not you know he's not stalin right and realizing that he's not stalin realizing that it's actually a joke to have a, a cult of personality for brezhnev or chernyanko or whoever is like crucial to the downfall of that system again very different yeah. systems but you know i really like there's a sense in which it's actually genuinely educational to have this, you know, guy who's like brain is like a tennis ball floating in fluid, you know, basically, I mean, you know, literally you could probably fit your fist in his ventricles, you know, um, um, <laughs> going on camera and pretending to be the leader of the free world. Right. You know, I was talking to a, uh, 
like an American political journalist at a, a wedding, you know, the other day. Uh, that's you know talking to people at weddings is great because they tend to be uh, they tend to be very frank. Obviously, I would not reveal this person's name, but you know, he, you know, he was. Uh, uh, I was just like, well, you know, Biden doesn't have, uh, you know, Alzheimer's. And he's like, well, you know, <laughs> you know, so 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 whatever's going on there, like he old. Right. And and Trump is too old, too. Right. But Trump is not decrepit in the same way Biden comes out, you know, on the on the TV the other day. He's just like word salad is starting to come out. He's like more than 100 Americans were killed by covid. And it's just like, wait, what? And, and, you know, like he just says weird stuff. I mean, imagining him debating, it was kind of absurd in 2020, but now it's going to be so comical. I think there's a reasonable chance that they managed to, like, usher him off stage, but he doesn't want to go. And, you know, it's possible that they'll use actually his son's corruption, uh, his son's corruption. I mean, like, like there's a separation there. Come on, guys. Right. But but the um, to usher him off stage, I think, you know, the very well-informed political journalist that I was talking to suggested that there was maybe like a 30 percent chance of that happening. The problem is that the natural successor, Kamala Harris, is just fearfully uncharismatic and the and and just makes a horrible horrible candidate so yeah i mean you know what you have is this um actually you know it's funny when i talk to conservatives it's very very hard often because they have this totally fake model of the world but you know insiders really they 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 understand they may not use my terminology but when Mm. i talk to them i can easily and he had this nice description of the democratic party he described it as quote a giant job fair unquote and and, you know that's really what it is right and and it's a giant job fair and that's what the social democratic party is it's a giant job fair and you know that's what you know global warming does it creates jobs it creates meaning it creates purpose it creates none of this purpose would be there if the sun was just getting a little bit hotter no one actually cares that much about the weather and the what they care about is power and and so Really, you know, when you like, I mean, just seeing this, these things clearly is just kind of the first and most important challenge, really. And if you can kind of, you know, this is why sort of the metaphor of Plato's cave or the red pill or whatever is sort of so powerful. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of false doors opening off of Plato's cave that just lead you downward into the earth, basically to another cave, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's like when people select their red pills for like how shocking they are, they just end up with a Holocaust denial or something, which just gets you deeper, deeper in the hole. Right. And, you know, but getting out of the hole is just not so hard really. And it's just that you can't, you know, like I think that almost everyone who's highly intelligent, who's basically opposed in Sweden to the Swedish system is some kind of classical libertarian liberal or libertarian or something like that, uh, which I think is yeah. it's more it's more respectable than Holocaust denial. Uh, it's more <laughs> true than Holocaust denial, but it, it doesn't really get you any further than Holocaust denial, in my opinion. Yeah. And here, in a way, I think we can segue over it into what we set out to do, which was basically, okay, you can have the regime change mindset. And we talked a bit about how you get into that, but then how this actually 
is mobilized or brought about. And I think like, I don't know, Kali, if you want us to give respective views on um, like different aspects of the monarch in relation to the Swedish case, in relation to also uh, Curtis' um, larger corpus on these ideas. Like the... Uh, I, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I think how, how it's brought about is, you know, is obviously a very interesting question. And, you know, what it is and how it's brought about are very different things. I think how it's brought about has to basically, again, you know, people always fall back on these 19th and 20th century models for social and political change. And I think these models are really um, extremely false and just do not work in this century. You know, the sort of traditional leftist model of social and political change, which is just never really applied to what was actually happening is like people sense injustice and they come together as a community to fight against injustice. Mm. Okay. Well, uh, there's no real sense of sense of community is disappearing. People are highly atomized under this new totalitarian regime. They have no real sense of collective power. Moreover, when they exercise collective power, they do so in ways like gluing themselves to the road that basically feed their own egos and do not does not serve any kind of central public interest, especially they come together to give themselves power to feel powerful and coming together to basically replace an oligarchy with a monarchy is the polar opposite of that, because you're actually coming together to give up power. You're actually mm. saying we are exercising power in a fundamentally democratic sense. We are all acting together in concert, but we are exercising power not to take it, but actually to give it up. And there's something deeply, deeply ironic about that. There's almost like it's almost like a Christian level of irony where, you know, basically Christ comes not to rule, but to die, you know, and and the you know, the irony of like we're taking power to give it away. is just like what we're taking power not to rule, but to be ruled. We're going to basically and be ruled in a way they're not, you know, this new ruler maybe isn't even accountable to us. Maybe there's no way actually to reverse this decision. And, and there's something deeply ironic about that. And the thing is that, fortunately, if you're going to do something deeply ironic, but nonetheless very rational and kind of reasonable, and if you think it through, it makes complete sense. But on its face, it looks very ironic, sort of almost like frivolous in a way. And if you want people to do something that has a lot of like collective spirit where people are ready to fight like Spartans for their liberty, you know, they're the Minutemen, they're forming militias or whatever. Right. You know, you need a population very different from the population that we have today. Hmm. But if you're looking for people to do something ironic and frivolous and even like sort of dangerously frivolous, you need people like the people we have today <laughs> and and you need a nation of children, essentially. And and so, you know, when you have a nation of children, what you need is a solution that is appropriate for a nation of children. And so, you know, the examples that you're looking at are less like the Boston Tea Party or some crazy, you know, stuff like that, which if, if it appeared in today's world would be like remind us of like ISIS or like, you know, Anders Bering Breivik or something just like 
crazy, demented, dangerous stuff. Like, you know, you know, like, sure. Imagine like an army of 100,000 Brivix, you know, could they do this? Yeah, sure. Uh, do you have an army of 100,000 Brivix? No, you have one nut job. Furthermore, mm. they would have to not be nut jobs, which is impossible because Brivix is a nut job, you mm. know, and and the it's it's just unthinkable. It's just like wrong. Right. You know, whereas actually to perform this basically fundamentally frivolous act of saying we'd like not to take power collectively, but to give power collectively, mm. you have to, you know, there's something very ironic about that. And we have the most ironic population in human history. There has yeah. never been more mass market irony it used to be like confined to a very small, sophisticated elite. And now it's everywhere and so when you look at the kind of when you look at the kind of irony you know so you see things like you know the uh storm area 51 in the us okay it didn't happen but sort of that sense of like frivolousness there's a sense of something like that behind trump but there's also like a sense of that in like the sort of pirate parties which i think is kind of a dead thing now but the pirate parties had a sense of like kind of you know playful upper class mass irony Irony. They didn't sort of understand kind of what to do with it in any way. But like fundamentally, you know, the idea behind the pirate party was like, what if we had a joke and, and made it real? Mm. And like, what if we had a joke and made it real is kind of the right mood for a change like this. It's a sort of it's like, you know, rational at a rational level. It's sort of the right, you know, in terms of the Kantian moral and, you know, categorical imperative, absolutely the right thing to do rationally for all voters is to get together, give up their power and elect a king. OK, that's very rational that now, you know, getting, you know, that level of reason across to the masses is very difficult. But the thing is, if something can be rational at one level and actually works and can be understood to be rational by, um, you know, what the Marxists would call a vanguard and mm. then can be understood ironically and frivolously almost as a game by the population. There's a very interesting American political thinker named John Esconis. He's a a professor at a uh, Catholic university, I think some, some university, but he's not like a religious person. He's a, uh, and he has basically a theory that politics in the future is going to much more resemble what's called augmented reality games. You know, the kind of games that you sort of play kind of in the real world, but it's like a computer mm -hmm. game like Assassin or something. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you were when you supported Trump, it didn't really feel like you were like supporting like the Sons of Liberty or something from the 18th century. It felt more like you were playing a game. And like, mm. I think that that the really effective kind of high engagement politics of the 21st century is going to feel frivolous like that. It's going to feel like a game is being played. It's not going to feel sort of, you know, in earnest, but it's actually going to be in earnest. And I think that tapping into that energy is sort of the only path from here to there. So again, that's very, very different from anything that you're going to get from some like 
classical liberal, you know, Swedish, you know, think tank, you know, I'm sorry about my bad Swedish accent, but um, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, I'm, I'm almost falling into like uh, the Muppets chef accent, but uh, the, birdie, uh, birdie, birdie. Birdie, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's you're really... not too far off being integrated, so you're doing fine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and uh, yeah. So, 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 so that's sort of the only kind of, path that i can see mm. toward that and then you kind of make a joke and it becomes real and once it becomes real the thing is you know because you have this very weak population the population cannot possibly resist it once it becomes real like they actually don't have the sort of the kind of like democratic energy that overthrew the kings of old just doesn't exist anymore you have people you know the, the people the social democratic party it's the same thing it's a giant job fair you know those jobs come from the king it's still going to be a giant job fair and people mm -hmm. are going to be doing different jobs yeah. you know because i yeah. think a king would govern sweden you know count axel whatever Oxel would govern Sweden. Um, Oxenstierna would cover Oxenstierna. Uh, you know, sorry, I'm I'm going to Oxenstierna. How do you how do you have Herna and that's that's spelled S T? What have you done to like the good Roman alphabet there that it's spelled Oxenstierna? Yeah, I, I don't have an Anglo le lecture us about uh, making sense of of the spelling. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, fair enough. English fair language. Enough, calm down, Calet. Calm down. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. But at least you know all the, all those words are like old. But you know the uh, um um yeah it's true. I mean an Englishman. I'm not an Englishman. An Englishman would have to defend why um you pronounce edinburgh edinburgh and uh, chalmondley mm -hmm. chumley but uh mm -hmm. you know in america we don't do that so much but um the uh, actually i love going around uh here in berkeley and explaining to people that berkeley in england is pronounced barkley but yeah. the uh it's bishop barkley but it's berkeley yeah. california but uh yeah the the uh okay fair fair enough fair enough fair enough point taken i won't i won't hit you on that again but the uh <laughs> yeah i mean you know once you actually do it then everything changes and changes extremely rapidly and you know one of the sort of easiest ways to examine to imagine kind of future policy is to basically conceive or you know to do any kind anything utopian really any kind of because what we're really talking about is is essentially a utopian vision and it's a vision of a very different country that doesn't exist and like you know utopian visions of countries that didn't exist but were created really did succeed during the enlightenment they made that work and <clears throat> so when you look at the present through the eyes of the future that you'd like to create, you know, you see things like, you know, what does the present look like through the eyes of the future? Well, first of all, it's incredibly dangerous and dirty. You know, imagine how in a world where do you have by any chance any uh, graffiti in Switzerland? Is graffiti a thing? Uh, maybe a little bit. Maybe there's some places where you might you might see that. You're not you're not counting with the Switzerland meme. And 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 what about in China? You go to China. <laughs> do you see any graffiti? No, you don't. And no, no, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Because it's a sign of like social disorder. And in fact, the whole style is is copied from American social disorder and you know and there are ways in which basically new york is getting getting filthy and screwed up again but there's still ways in which 
you know, New York in 2023 can look at New York in 1973 and be like, oh, my God, like, you know, there's they managed to get most of the graffiti off the subway trains. Like you've seen old movies from New York, like Taxi Driver or something mm. where you see like, yeah, kind of, you know, yeah. but New York in the 50s wasn't like that either. Right. And so if you showed, you know, New York in 1973 to New Yorkers in 1953, they would be like, oh, my God, we got to take a U-turn. You know, how do we get Hitler on the ballot? You know, and mm. and and the like, because this was basically the result of the ideas that conquered the world right mm. and they didn't realize that this would be the result because 1953 looks pretty nazi from the standpoint of 1973 because uh you know the um uh, the the visions of uh, an american dilemma hadn't really been implemented yet at that point um but the uh the american dilemma the um so so when you look at the present from the standpoint of the future, OK, the first thing that you say is like, wow, it's incredibly dirty and dangerous. But mm. I think it goes deeper than that, because you basically see, you know, if you were to show like take Americans in 1923 in any major city and you show them pictures of the like just an ordinary like street scene, say at like 6 p.m. in the, in, you know, downtown New York. They would be like, it's like a ghost town. It's like, what happened to all the people? Are they all dead? Like, they're all like, you know, you have this sense of like grayness and deadness that comes. It's almost like, you know, when you look at photographs from 1923, they're all in black and white. And you look at photographs from today and they're all in color and you almost feel that it should be reversed. There's like a kind of grayness to life a lot of you know there's like a lot of pointlessness and you're seeing sort of social trends which on their face look good like you know you see basically falls in the u.s and like teenage pregnancy and you're like wow people are getting values they're not getting values they're having less sex kids aren't even bothering to get their driver's licenses mm -hmm. today you know when i was a kid it was just like oh my god i have a driver's license i'm free now they're just like well i just stay in my room and do social media all, the, all day what's the difference and so there's this these increasing levels of like anime and like increasing sort of levels of like bullshit jobs where you're just like what is the point and like the sense of like gray purposelessness again reminds us sort of so much of the soviet union there's so many people who's basically you know the set of people i mean i i just feel like i'm i'm so lucky in so many ways because i'm a person who's i feel that in life my kind of talents have found adequate application in the things that i do there's so few people at whatever level of inborn talent that can like say that you know mm. it's like even if you're just like suppose you're like a soccer player but you're not quite a good enough mm. soccer player to play in the premier league or whatever mm. you spend mm. 15 years training you have this incredible skill and you know, what do you do you come you know it's like the the coaches they coach my my son's you know competitive soccer team are all they're all people who wanted to be professional soccer players and washed out at some point right and for every professional soccer player there's a thousand of them right and there's ten thousand you know and and the and and like what a sort of like you have this you know i don't nearly really know what can be done how a society can say hey let us use more of our talented athletes in a more equitable way that is less of a tournament economy. But you can imagine that being a purpose, you know, same thing for filmmakers, artists, whatever, you know, people there's <clears throat> there's I think a lot of, you know, 
the, if you're designing a society and you have your right question is not, you know, how many films do we need, but mm. how many filmmakers do we have? How many people were put on earth to be filmmakers and how do we generate a society that basically can make all of those people into filmmakers. Mm. Some people aren't born to be filmmakers. Some people were made to be shoemakers or artisans. There's a lot of people who could be master artisans. I mean, you know, in general, any kind of physically and neurologically normal human being can be trained into a career where the things that they do just look amazing to someone who does not have that training. You know, if you watch basically a master shoemaker who's been training to make shoes since he was 11, making shoes, you're just like, this man is a god. Like, I could not do this. What he does in 20 minutes, I could not do in a whole year. Right. You know, and and having that kind of having the sort of the sense. I mean, it's a very sort of sort of social democratic way to think in a way that I mean, and this goes back to the origins of this way of thinking and like John Ruskin, you know, who begets the Fabians. And of course, so much social democratic thinking is just Anglophile thinking that mm. slavishly copies the Fabians. Right. You know, if you think that this this way of thinking came from Sweden, I'm sorry, that's a very provincial way to think. Get real. It comes from England, you know, and mm. and the the everything, everything in the 19th century comes from England, you know, and and the you can dress it up in Swedish clothes. You can make it go hurdy, birdy, birdy, birdy. But really, it comes from London, you know, and. And hoardy birdie, you know, and and so, you know, social democracy that you have. Yes, it's you know, it's it's Fabianism with Swedish characteristics. You know, there's there's things that are Swedish about it, but it's a fundamentally English way of thinking. You know, you can find roots of the kind of the farther back you go in the past, the sort of more utopian and broader minded it is. And the less the more it's like a vision of how we could all live and less like a giant job fair and a totalitarian mm. speech suppressing machine, you know. And and so everything that I'm saying here is to be found in Ruskin and Carlyle and the like. The idea that basically the state should manage the economy not to maximize productivity, which we have more than enough of thanks to our room temperature superconductors or whatever the hell, and not to maximize human productivity, but to maximize human fulfillment. Selling that to progressives, I think, is not so hard. Right. You know, and then you basically just point out that there's just no way the system of government that we have can do that. And yep. like, let's let's entertain that thought further because I think this links quite well, like your your whole spiel <laughs> on the purpose of of jobs in a way. Excuse me, and... it's not a spiel; it's a vision. It's a vision. It's not a spiel. <laughs> Sorry, but you can call it a spiel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love typically the... anti-Semite uh, Swedish person. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. So we're gonna soon, break. I'm gonna storm off the, the call and accuse you of being anti-Semites. <laughs> um, and okay. uh... <laughs> that's you one for you. What can I say? Go on, go I, on. I thought I used his podcast to come. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, let's talk about the. Never mind. But, <laughs> my vision, my vision. Go Are on. we coming out as Himmlerites? Yeah, yeah, exactly, is this, is this exactly, what we're doing exactly. now? Very right? Swedish-sounding name, Himmler. Makes you think. Makes you think. But uh, <laughs> go on, go on. But I think there's there's no way way of of scaffolding from a 
purpose or meaningful jobs to the transcendental aspect of the monarchy. That is yes. the right to rule that you have also mm. talked about. And I wonder, like, Carla, do you want to jump in on this or do you want to have let Curtis have the first stab at this? No, but like, like, let's just say something about the right to rule and especially the sacredness of it, because I think think it links sort of with with uh, with the frivolity in a perverse sort of way, right? Because yes. what we saw with the Trumpian like sense was also people who who were uh, more excited about you know uh, uh, an idea, a frivolous idea of 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 like a monarch rather than a rather than a political candidate or even a set of policies. Yeah, even a set of policies. Yeah, yeah. and so and so people people. F- frivolously fall because they're so frivolous and so unmoored and so disengaged and so unrooted. They sort of fall into this natural older way of being and they kind of reinvent without realizing it. They kind of they go full cycle to this kind of, you know, these kinds of ways of thinking, which they can only perceive in frivolous ways. So, for example, it's like when people watch Harry Potter, you know, Harry Potter is just (laughs) ridiculously full of like aristocracy and classism and monarchism. I mean, Harry Mm -hmm. is born is born with the right to rule. Uh, You know, he's of he's of noble royal blood. Uh, you know, the banks are controlled by Jews all around them are like muggles who are peasants. <laughs> right. You know, he's, he goes to this ancient institution. I mean, it's just this thinly disguised reactionary fantasy and, and people just lap it up, you know, yeah. and I'm just like, my God, like, you know, how do you not realize that? I mean, I guess, well, I mean, now now J.K. Rowling has been edited as a transphobe, but, you know, like yeah. all of this stuff, like the secret to, to J.K. Rowling is that she's just laundering just this like unabashed reactionary sentiments into children's books. Right. You know, and yeah. and I mean, to say nothing of Lord of the Rings, which is, you know, ends with yeah. the like Return of the King. Actually, I'm really mad. Excuse me if I can mount my favorite hobby horse and just be extremely mad at Peter it. Jackson for deleting the ending of Return of the King. Because the ending of Return of the King is, of course, not, you know, Frodo goes off with the elves and they live happily ever after, but the scouring of the Shire. And the scouring of the Shire depicts a reactionary anti-Bolshevik, basically, (laughs) counter-revolution, right? And there's there's just no way... There's just no way to spin that as anything, but like basically, you know, uh, I'm like basically Frodo is coming back to lead the white terror. Like Frodo was Monaheim, yep. you know, and and mm-hmm. right, you know, that wasn't Sweden, but but Finland, but wasn't Monaheim yeah. a Swede anyway, right? I mean, I mean, this Swede? is yeah. basically Swede? all, all yeah, the I mean, Finns, can, Finns, Finns are Finns are, Finns are muggles, yeah, Finns are muggles and hobbits. They can't They're live with the Swedish swimming class. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Someday, Greater Sweden will become reality, and you know, we'll you'll give them the the the, the structure. It's still here in hearts and minds, Curtis. It's still here in hearts and minds. There you go. There you go. Yeah, we even stop there like estonia should be renamed <laughs> kurland and, and on we go <laughs> kurland yes 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 and uh you know you're like western civilization ended at the battle of poltava you know and uh, the, truly uh, truly that that's a way you know that's a way to solve the ukrainian war that's a peace program that no one has realized just bring both sides yes. under swedish rule Yes. And you know, <laughs> Petersburg yeah. is now Swedish, as should yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, can yeah, re- yeah. rename Ukraine Gammelby. 
Yeah, how's that spell? I, 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 no, it's it's like after Poltava, uh, the story goes that a number of Swedish uh, soldiers were taken captive and moved down to the the Black Sea, where they founded a village uh, under Russian captivity named Gamelby. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is all. I mean, you same know, fact. They stole our cars not, and everything. Why not take go all the way and retake Mikkelgard? You know, and uh, yes. <laughs> the. <laughs> They're they're sweet. Yes. They're Vikings anyway. The Russians won't yeah. admit this. They have they their own admit, weird yeah. story about. They the have Rus, their but... own weird story, but we know that they mm. would just be basically barbarians eating roots and berries if the Vikings yes. did not come down. So yes, we yes. supremacism very. But very for strong, now, we yeah. will be confined to what we have. That's okay. Yeah, so yeah, let's... yeah. That's okay. That's okay. It's, you got to start somewhere. You got to. Yeah. I mean, my my hero Bukele is making noises about uh, you know restoring New Spain. You know because he's <laughs> he's he's the most he's the most popular politician in. Uh, all of all of Latin America now because yes. uh, <laughs> yes. the uh, uh, so, El Salvadorian so I call him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Change is change is coming. Change is coming. Uh, and, uh, you know, the uh, so. So, yeah. So so there's there's a sense in which basically the sort of these kind of this sort of natural political order emerges not out of piety but out of nihilism and you know even if it emerges out of nihilism it does not have to be nihilist in its form it basically you know it's sort of like nihilism itself is the cure for nihilism and you actually you know from this nihilistic frivolity of like who cares you sort of can see this natural political order re-emerging and once it re-emerges because it's natural and because it's well suited to who, who humans are and in particular because all of the sort of revolutionary energy and fire that made the last quarter of the second millennium such a disastrous place has now been dissipated that you know it actually contrary to what most people believe is actually i mean you talked you know let's sort of bookend this by why you started off with talking about the social democratic party as basically having two very clear things in mind how to take power and how to stay in power and mm. I, I would I would argue that any serious political school of thought has to have extremely solid theories for both of those things, especially if you have a solid theory for the first, but not in the second. You're creating a very, very large amount of trouble. And mm. just don't, don't, yeah. don't, 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 don't. Right. But, you know, the ability of that natural order to persist is sort of like the ability of the Roman Imperium to persist, where it comes after, you know, Romans had not had kings for 500, 600 years. I forget the exact apocryphal mm. dating. But, you know, mm. most people in like 50 BC would have said, well, Romans will never accept a king. Right. And, you know, the sure, the emperors didn't call themselves kings, but they were kings. But they were. Yeah. And it turned out that basically yeah. Rome, the Roman virtues had degenerated to such a point that actually being ruled by a king was the natural political form for Rome for basically the imperial centuries and attempts to restore Republican rule seemed as doomed as attempts to restore a king would have been in like 300 BC, mm, where yeah. that would have been considered laughable in the area era of like Cincinnatus and Regulus. And suddenly by the time of Augustus, it was no longer laughable. It was obviously right. 
Mm, and that's yeah. sort of how kind of the great like cycle completes. Now, you didn't get Augustus and Caesar through an epidemic of mass frivolity. You got them through a civil war. We're so frivolous that we're not even capable of a civil war, but we're certainly capable of mass frivolity. And mm. especially with our amazing communications technologies, the ability to like sort of organize frivolity into kind of a political flash mob and, you know, I don't know what gets us from A to B, but I know that it's a large number of people doing the same thing once. And it's like it has to actually happen in one step. It's not an incremental, slow sort of people working away at this. It's just people being like it's like the fall of the Soviet Union. The fall of the, the Soviet Union could never have fallen incrementally. It's like when you I'm still I'm not narrowing it down that much, but I'm narrowing it down a fair bit. And it's definitely a case of when you think about how the system can change. It's a good example of kind of Sherlock Holmes type reasoning where you first have to rule out everything that's impossible. And then mm -hmm. when you rule out everything that's impossible, you're left with something that sounds really improbable. And then you realize that the only reason that's improbable is that there's a lot of people who think that impossible things are possible. And so persuading all of these people that the things that they think are possible, like basically, you know, a return to constitutional classical liberalism or whatever are not possible. That's basically sort of the only way that you can start to see like change. I just noticed, by the way, that our walls are the same color. That's really disturbing. That is true. <laughs> and, <laughs> I was actually looking at your room and thinking it was my room. I was like, what, 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 what is what is that? Well, color? Ikea does that. Ikea, <laughs> yes, the world has been Ikea-fied. Um, all right. I think I, sh I think we should probably uh, wrap this up because uh, I'm a very busy single parent. Yep. But uh, any any final questions? I think that covers a lot of what we went to go over. And I think this will be a very good uh, podcast, both for here and in birdie birdie land. Well, on that point, then, Curtis, we're very thankful that you came to help us with the Swedish dilemma. Uh, and the, <laughs> as, as we started out with the, the American dilemma, the pig <laughs> problem and modern yeah. mon monarchy. Uh, so yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Let me know when the, when the podcast is up and I'll, uh, I'll send, uh, I'll send people to it and uh, you'll we'll make some, sure to do that. You'll get some, you'll get some traffic. Yeah. Thank you. Make Cook Sunkhana great again. Yes, yes. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. Take care, guys. Okay, you too. Thank you. Bye. See you. Bro. Bro. We got content. <laughs>